The following is a conversation with Jeremy Surrey, a historian at UT Austin, whose research interests and writing are on modern American history with an eye towards presidents and in general individuals who wielded power. Quick mention of our sponsors, Element, Monk Pack, Belcampo, Four Sigmatic, and Eight Sleep. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that in these conversations, for better or worse, I seek understanding, not activism. I'm not left nor right. I love ideas, not labels. And most fascinating ideas are full of uncertainty, tension, and trade-offs. Labels destroy that. I try ideas out, let them breathe for a time, try to challenge, explore, and analyze. But mostly, I trust the intelligence of you, the listener, to think and to make up your own mind, together with me. I will try to have economists and philosophers on from all points on the multidimensional political spectrum, including the extremes. I will try to both have an open mind and to ask difficult questions when needed. I'll make mistakes. Don't shoot this robot at the first sign of failure. I'm still under development. Pre-release version 0.1. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now. No ads in the middle. As a listener, I hate those. I give you timestamps, so if you skip, please still check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. I'm very picky with the sponsors which take on. So hopefully if you buy their stuff, you'll find value in it just as I have. This episode is sponsored by Element, electrolyte drink mix, spelled L-M-N-T. I've been doing a lot of keto and carnivore diets and fasting, and I think the number one thing to get those rights is to get your electrolytes, specifically sodium, potassium, and magnesium. That's where Element has been really helpful for me, both when I'm exercising, when I'm fasting, all that kind of stuff. It really does make a huge difference. You know, the thing that people talk about with the keto diet is you get this kind of what they call keto flu, where you feel groggy, there's headaches, all that kind of stuff. And that really, most of the time, can be fixed with getting the electrolytes into your system, making sure you drink a lot of water and getting the electrolytes. Element just makes it uh, very easy to get that mix correct. Olympians use it, tech people use it. I swear by this stuff. Try it at drinkelement.com slash lex. That's drink lmnt.com slash lex. I highly recommend it. If you're at all like me with doing the keto diet or doing any kind of fasting, Element will be a lifesaver. This episode is also sponsored by Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars that contain one gram of sugar or less, two to three grams of net carbs, and there are only 150 calories. My favorite is coconut, almond, dark chocolate. Second is peanut butter, dark chocolate. I tend to be really picky about the kind of snacks I partake in. So if I'm traveling or if I'm on the move in terms of uh, doing long distance running or just don't have quick, easy access to uh, sort of a good meat or meat and veggies meal, then good snacks are essential. And my favorite for the kind of lifestyle, for the kind of diet I live is uh, Monk Pack. The macro mix is just right. It's delicious, but it doesn't do any of the crazy amounts of sugar. So I don't recommend many snacks, but uh, of the ones I do recommend, Monk Pack is at the top. So get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering code LEX at checkout. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange it. That's monkpack.com and enter code LEX at checkout. Like I said, my favorite is coconut almond dark chocolate. 
So it's definitely one I would recommend unless you hate coconut, which apparently many people do. I, for one, love coconut. This show is also sponsored by Belcampo Farms, whose mission is to deliver meat you can feel good about. Meat that is good for you, good for the animals, and good for the planet. Belcampo animals graze on open pastures and seasonal grasses resulting in meat that is higher in nutrients and healthy fats. Plus, friends, it's delicious. Belcampo has been the best meat I've eaten at home. It's a little bit more expensive than store-bought meat, but it's definitely worth it, both in terms of taste and in terms of ethics. I'm actually going to visit a uh, Belcampo farm uh, late May. Maybe I'll do a couple of videos and a podcast out there, or maybe I'll just enjoy the experience. I'm not sure, but I'm a huge fan of what they're doing. I can't wait to check it out. If you can pay a little bit more money for the meat you consume, I think you're not going to regret it. You should definitely consider ordering some of their meats. You can do so by using code LEX at bellcampo.com slash LEX for 20% off for the first-time customers. That's code LEX at bellcampo.com slash LEX. They'll deliver it straight to your door. I think you're going to love it. This show is sponsored by Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. Again, I think I heard this ad read on uh, Cal Newport's Deep Questions podcast that I highly recommend. I've been binge listening to it. It has a lot of good productivity advice. I sometimes feel like I'm shamed for the ways of my life when I listen to Cal because he often has his stuff together. I tend to embrace the chaos. I tend to be much worse at saying no to uh, projects and people and so on. I just kind of embrace the chaos of it and work my ass off. I think Cal is much more structured, but uh, there's so much to learn from him. Anyway, he's a supporter of Four Sigmatic, so am I. I think the coffee is delicious, which is the most important thing, but it's also really good for you. Get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles if you go to foursigmatic.com slash Lex. That's foursigmatic.com slash Lex. This episode is also sponsored by 8sleep and its Pod Pro mattress. It controls temperature with an app. It's packed with sensors and can cool down to as low as 55 degrees on each side of the bed separately. Go to 8sleep.com slash Lex to get special savings. Because I'm in the process of moving, I currently don't have 8sleep on my bed and I really, really miss it. It's kind of funny how quickly you get used to amazing things. And uh, 8sleep is definitely one of those. If you like your mattress already, you can just get the Pod Pro cover that goes over your mattress. And then you get all the nice features that they provide with the sensors and the app and so on. But their mattress just so you know, is also very nice. So I recommend it if you don't have a mattress or if you're looking to upgrade your mattress. They track a bunch of metrics like heart rate variability, but, but honestly, cooling alone is worth the money. That's what I actually miss most here in Texas. Go to 8sleep.com slash Lex to get special savings. That's 8sleep.com slash Lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Jeremy Sorry. studied many American presidents throughout history. So uh, who do you think was the greatest president in American history? The greatest American president was Abraham Lincoln. And uh, Tolstoy reflected on this himself, actually, uh, saying that when he was in the Caucasus, he asked these um, 
peasants in the Caucasus, who was the greatest man in the world that they had heard of. And they said, Abraham Lincoln. And why? Well, because he gave voice to people who had no voice before. He turned politics into an art. This is what Tolstoy recounted, the peasants in the Caucasus telling him. Uh, Lincoln made politics more than about power. He made it an art. He made it a, a source of liberation. And those living even far from the United States could see that uh, model, that inspiration uh, from Lincoln. Uh, he was a man uh, who had two years of education, yet he mastered the English language. And he used the language uh, to help people imagine a different kind of world. You see, leaders and presidents are at their best when they're doing more than just manipulating institutions and power, when they're helping the people imagine a better world. And, and he did that as no other president has. And you say he gave, he gave voice to those who are voiceless. Uh, who are you talking to uh, about in general? Is this about African-Americans or is this about just the populace in general? Certainly part of it is about uh, slaves, uh, African-Americans, and many immigrants, uh, immigrants from all parts of Europe and other areas that have come to the United States. But part of it was just for ordinary American citizens. The Republican Party, for which Lincoln was the first president, was a party created to give voice to uh, poor white men, as well as uh, slaves and others. And Lincoln was a poor white man himself, uh, grew up without slaves and without land, which meant you had almost nothing. What do you think about the trajectory of that man with only two years of education? Is there something to be said about how does one come from nothing and nurture the ideals that kind of make this country great into something where you can actually be a leader of this nation to espouse those ideas, to give the vo voice to the voiceless? Yes, I think, uh, I think you actually hit the nail on the head. I think... Uh, what he represented was uh, the opportunity, and that was the word that mattered for him, opportunity that came from the ability to raise yourself up, uh, to work hard, and to be compensated for your hard work. And this is at the core of the Republican Party of the 19th century, which is the core of capitalism. It's not about getting rich. It's about getting compensated for your work. It's about being incentivized to do better work. And Lincoln was constantly striving. One of his uh, closest associates, uh, Herndon, said he was the little engine of ambition that couldn't stop. He just, just kept going, taught himself to read, taught himself to be a lawyer. He went through many failed businesses before he even reached that point, many failed love affairs. Um, but he kept trying, he kept working, and what American society offered him and what he wanted American society to offer everyone else was the opportunity to keep trying to fail and then get up and try again. What do you think was the nature of that ambition? Was there a hunger for power? I think Lincoln had a hunger for success. I think he had a hunger to um, get out of the poor station he was in. He had a hunger to be someone who had control over his life. Freedom for him did not mean the right to do anything you wanna do, but it meant the right to be secure from being dependent upon someone else. So independence, uh, he writes in his letters when he's very young that he hated being dependent on his father. He grew up uh, without a mother. His father was a struggling farmer and he would write in his letters that his father treated him like a slave on the farm. Uh, some think his hatred of slavery came from that experience. He didn't ever wanna have to work for someone again. He wanted to be free and independent and he wanted again, every American, this is the kind of Jeffersonian dream, mm -hmm. to be the owner of themselves and the owner of their future. You know, that's a really nice definition of freedom. We often think kind of this very abstract notion of being able to do anything you want, but really it's ultimately breaking yourself free from the, the constraints, like the very 
tight dependence on whether it's the institutions or on your family or the expectations or the community or whatever, be, be able to be, to realize yourself within the constraints of your own abilities. You, it's still not true freedom. Because true freedom is probably sort of uh, almost like designing a video game character or something like that. <laughs> I agree. I, I think uh, I think that's exactly right. I think freedom is not uh, that I can have any outcome I want. I can't control outcomes. The most powerful, freest person in the world cannot control outcomes. Yeah. But it means that at least I get to make choices. Someone else doesn't make those choices for me. Is there something to be said about Lincoln and on the political game front of it? which is he's accomplished some of them. I, I don't know, but it seems like there was some tricky politics going on. We, we tend to not think of it in those terms because of the dark aspects of slavery. We tend to think about it in sort of ethical and human terms, but in, at, in their time, it was probably as much a game of politics, not just these broad questions of human nature, right? It was, it was a game. So is there something to be said about being a skillful player in the game of politics that you take from Lincoln? A absolutely. And um, Lincoln never read Karl von Clausewitz, the great uh, 19th century German thinker on strategy and politics, but, but he embodied the same wisdom, which is that everything is politics. If you want to get <laughs> anything done, uh, and this includes even relationships, uh, th there's a politics to it. What does that mean? It means that uh, you, you have to persuade, coerce, encourage people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, and Lincoln, Lincoln was a master at that. He was a master at that for two reasons. He had learned through his hard life to read people, to anticipate them, to spend a lot of time listening. One thing I often tell uh, people is uh, the best leaders are the listeners, not the talkers. And then second, um, Lincoln was very thoughtful and planned every move out. He was thinking three or four moves, maybe five moves down the chessboard, while others were at room, move number one or two. That's fascinating to think about him just listening yes. to studying. That's, uh, you know, they, they, they look at great fighters in this way. Like the first few rounds of boxing and uh, mixed martial arts, you're studying the movement of your opponent uh, in order to sort of uh, define the holes. That's, that's a really interesting frame to think about it. Is there, in terms of relationships, where do you think as president or as a politician, is the most impact to be had. I've been reading a lot about Hitler recently. And one of the things that I'm more and more I'm starting to wonder, how, what the hell did he do alone in a room with one-on-one -on -one with people? Because it seems like that's where he was exceptionally effective. When I, when I think about certain leaders, um, I'm not sure Stalin was this way. I apologize, been very obsessed with, these, uh, with this <laughs> period of human history. Uh, <laughs> It just seems like certain leaders are extremely effective one-on-one. -on -one. A lot of people think of Hitler and Lincoln as a speech maker, as a great charismatic speech maker. But it seems like to me that some of these guys were really effective inside a room. What do you think? What's more important? Your effectiveness to, uh, to make a hell of a good speech, sort of be in a room with many people, or is it, all boil down to one-on-one? -on -one. 
Well, I think in a sense, it's both. One needs to do both. And most politicians, most leaders are better at one or the other. It's the rare leader who can do both. I will say that if you are going to be a, a figure who's a president or the leader of a complex organization, not a startup, but a complex organization where you have many different constituencies and many different interests, uh, you have to do the one-on-one -on -one really well. Because a lot of what's going to happen is you're going to be meeting with people who represent different groups, right? The leader of the labor unions, the leader of your investing board, et cetera. And you have to be able to persuade them. And it's the intangibles that often matter most. Lincoln's skill, and it's the same that FDR had, um, uh, is the ability to tell a story. I think Hitler was a little different, uh, but I'm, I'm, what I've read of Stalin is he was a storyteller too. One-on-one -on -one storyteller? Yeah, that's my, my understanding is that he... He, uh, and, and what Lincoln did, I don't want to compare Lincoln to Stalin, what Lincoln did uh, <laughs> is he, he was not confrontational. Uh, he was happy to have an argument if an argument were to be had, but actually what he would try to do is move you through telling a story that got you to think about your position in a different way, to basically disarm you. And Franklin Roosevelt did the same thing. Ronald Reagan did the same thing. Storytelling is a very important skill. It's almost heartbreaking that we don't get to have, uh, or maybe you can correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but it feels like we don't have a lot of information how all of these folks were in private, one-on-one -on -one conversations. Even if we get like stories about it, it's like, again, sorry to bring up Hitler, but like uh, people have talked about his uh, piercing gaze when they're one-on-one. -on -one. Like there's a feeling like he's just looking through you. I wonder, like, it makes me wonder, was Lincoln somebody who's a little bit more passive, like who's more, who, the ego doesn't shine. It's not like an overwhelming thing. Or is it more like, uh, again, don't want to bring up controversial figures, but uh, Donald Trump where it's more uh, menacing, right? There's a more like physically menacing thing where it's almost like a, almost like a bullying kind of uh, uh, dynamic. So I wonder... You know, I wish I wish we knew. I I wish because it, it's from a psychological perspective. I wonder if there's a thread that connects most yeah, great leaders. That's a great question. Um, so I think the best writer on this is Max Weber, right? And he talks about the the power of charisma. That the term charisma comes from Weber, right? And Weber's use of it actually to talk about profits. Mm -hmm. And I think he has a point, right? Uh, leaders who are effective in the way you describe are leaders who feel prophetic, uh, or Weber says they have a kind of magic about them. And I think that can come from different sources. I think that can come that can come from the way someone carries themselves. It can come from the way they use words. Um, so maybe there are different kinds of magic <laughs> that 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 someone develops. But I think there there are two things that that seem to be absolutely necessary. First is you have to be someone who sizes up the person on the other side of the table. You cannot be the person who just comes in and reads your brief. And then second, I think it's interactive, uh, and there is a quickness of thought. So you brought up Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump is a deep thinker at all, but he's quick. And I think that quickness is part of it. It's different from, from delivering a lecture where it's the depth of your thought. Can you for 45 minutes mm -hmm. analyze something? Many people can't do that, but they still might be very effective if they're able to quickly react, size up the person on the other side of the table and react in a way that moves that person in the way they wanna move them. Yeah, and, and there's also just a, coupled with the quickness is a kind of instinct about human nature. Yes. Sort of asking the question, what does this person worry about? What, is, what are the biggest problems? Somebody, uh, 
what is this Steven Schwartzman, I think, said to me, he's this businessman. I, I think he said like, what I've always tried to do is try to figure out, like ask enough questions to figure out what is the biggest problem in this person's life. Hmm. Try to get a sense of what is the biggest problem in their life, because that's actually what they care about most. And most people don't care enough to find out. And so he kind of wants to uh, sneak up on that right. and, and find that and then use that to then build closeness in order to then probably, he doesn't put it in those words, but to manipulate the person into whatever, sure, sure. to do whatever the heck they want. And I think, I think part of it, uh, part of it is that, and part of the effectiveness Donald Trump has is how quick he's able to figure that out. You've uh, written a book about how the role and power of the presidency has changed. So, has how has it changed since Lincoln's time? The evolution of the presidency as a concept, which seems like a fascinating lens through which to look at American history, sure. as a president. You know, we, we seem to only be talking about the presidents, maybe a general here and there, but it's mostly the the story of America is often told through presidents. That's right. That's right. And one of the points I've tried to make in, in my writing about this uh, and, and various other activities is we use this word president as if it's something timeless, mm -hmm. but the office has changed incredibly, just in, in Link, from Lincoln's time to the present, which is, you know, 150 years. He wouldn't recognize the office. Uh, today, and George Washington would not have recognized it in Lincoln. Just as I think a CEO today would be unrecognizable to a Rockefeller or a Carnegie of 150 years ago. So what are some of the ways in which the office has changed? I'll, I'll just point to three, there are a lot. Uh, one, uh, presidents now can communicate with the public directly. I mean, we've reached the point now where a president can have direct, almost one-on-one -on -one communication. President can use Twitter, if he so chooses, to circumvent all media. Um, that was unthinkable. Lincoln, in order to get his message across, often wrote letters to newspapers uh, <laughs> and waited for the newspaper for Horace Greeley in the New York Tribune to publish uh, his letter. That's how he communicated with the public. There weren't even many speaking opportunities. So that's a big change, right? Yes. We feel the president in our life much more. That's why we talk about him much more. Uh, that also creates more of a burden. This is the second point. Presidents are under a microscope. Presidents are under a microscope. You have to be very careful what you do and what you say, and you're judged by a lot of the elements of your behavior that are not policy relevant. In fact, the things we judge most and make most of our decisions on about individuals are often that. Uh, and then third, um, the power the president has, um, it's, it's inhuman, actually. And this is one of my critiques of how the office has changed. This one person uh, has power on a scale that's, that's I think, dangerous in a democracy and certainly uh, something the founders 220 years ago would have had trouble conceiving. Um, presidents now have the ability to deliver force across the world to, to literally assassinate people with a remarkable accuracy. Uh, and that's an enormous power that presidents have. So your sense, this is not to get conspiratorial, but do you think president currently has the power to, you know, initiate the assassination of somebody, of a political um, enemy or like a terrorist leader or, or that kind of thing to, to frame that person in a way where assassination is something that he alone or she alone could decide to do. I think it happens all the time and it's not to be conspiratorial. This is how we've fought terrorism by uh, targeting individuals now, you might say these were not elected leaders of state, but these were individuals with a large following. I mean, the killing of Osama bin Laden 
was was an assassination uh, operation, um, and we've we've taken out very successfully many leaders of terrorist organizations, and and we do it every day. You're saying that back in Lincoln's time or George Washington's time, there was more of a balance of power, like a president could not initiate this kind of assassination? Correct. I think presidents did not have the same kind of military or economic power. We could talk about how a president can influence a market, right, by uh, saying something uh, about uh, where uh, money is going to go or uh, singling out a company or critiquing a company in one way or another. They didn't have that kind of power. No, much of the prep power that a Lincoln or a Washington had was the power to mobilize people to then make their own decisions. At the start of the Civil War, Lincoln doesn't even have the power to bring people into the army. He has to go to the governor's and ask the governors to provide soldiers. So the governor of Wisconsin, the governor of Massachusetts. Could you imagine that today? <laughs> so, but yeah, so they use speeches and words to mobilize versus direct action in closed door environments, uh, initiating wars, for example. Correct. It's difficult to think about, if we look at Barack Obama, for example, This, if you're listening to this, and you're on the left or the right, please do not make this political. In fact, if you're a political person and you're getting angry at the mention of the word Obama or Donald Trump, please turn off this podcast and unsubscribe. <laughs> We're not gonna get very far. I hope we maintain a political discussion about even the modern presidents that uh, viewed through the lens of history, I think there's a lot to be learned through about, about the office and about human nature. Some people criticize Barack Obama for for sort of uh, expanding the the military industrial complex, engaging in more and more wars, as opposed to sort of the initial rhetoric was such that we would pull back uh, from sort of be more skeptical in our decisions to wage wars. So from the lens of the power of the presidency as the modern presidency, the fact that we continued the war in Afghanistan at different engagements in military conflicts, do you think Barack Obama could have stopped that? Do you put the responsibility on that expansion on him because of the implied power that the presidency has? Or is this power just sits there and if a president chooses to take it, they do. And if they don't, they don't. Almost like you don't want to engage, take on the responsibility because of the, the burden of that responsibility. So a lot of my research is about this exact question, not just with Obama. And my conclusion, and I think the research is pretty clear on this, is that structure has a lot more effect on us than we like to admit, which is to say that the circumstances, the institutions around us drive our behavior more than we like to think. So Barack Obama, I'm quite certain, came into the office of the presidency committed to actually reducing the use of military force overseas and reducing presidential war-making power. Uh, as a trained lawyer, he had a moral position on this, actually, and he tried, and, and he did withdraw American forces from Iraq and was, of course, criticized by many people for doing that. But at the same time, he had some real problems in the world to deal with, terrorism being one of them. And the tools he has are very much biased towards the use of military force. It's much harder as president to go and get Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping to agree with you. It's much easier to send these wonderful toys we have and these incredible soldiers we have over there. And when you have Congress, which is always against you, it's also easier to use the military because you send them there. And even if members of Congress from your own party or the other are angry at you, 
they'll still fund the soldiers. No member of Congress wants to vote to starve our soldiers overseas. So they'll stop your budget. They'll even threaten not to pay the debt, <laughs> but they'll still fund your soldiers. And so you are pushed by the circumstances you're in to do this, and it's very hard to resist. So that's, I think the criticism of Obama the fair one would be that he didn't resist the pressures that were there, but he did not make those pressures. So is there something about the putting the responsibility on the president to to form the structure around him locally such that he can make the policy that, the, that matches the rhetoric? So what I'm talking to is hiring. So basically just everybody you work with you have power as a president to, to, to fire and hire or, or to, to basically schedule meetings <laughs> in such a way that uh, can control your decision-making. So I imagine it's very difficult to, to uh, get out of Afghanistan or Iraq when most of your s scheduled meetings are with generals or something like right. that. But if you reorganize the schedule yes. Yes. and you reorganize who you have like late night talks with, you potentially have a huge ripple effect on the on the policy. I think that's right. I think uh, who has access to the president is absolutely right. crucial. And presidents have to be more strategic about that. They tend to be reacting to crises because every day has a crisis. Yeah. And if you're reacting to a crisis, you're not controlling access because the crisis is driving you. So that's one element of it. But I also think, and this is the moment we're in right now, presidents have to invest in reforming the system the system of decision-making. Should we have a National Security Council that looks the way it does? Should our military be structured the way it is? The, the founding fathers wanted a military that was divided. They did not want a unified Department of Defense. That was only created after World War II. Should we have as large a military as we have? Should we be in as many places? Um, there are some fundamental structural reforms we have to undertake. And part of that is who you appoint, but part of that is also how you change the institutions. The, the genius of the American system is that it's a dynamic system. It can be adjusted. It has been adjusted over time. That's the heroic story. The, the frustrating story is it often takes us a long time to make those adjustments until we go into such bad circumstances that we have no choice. So in the battle of power of the office of the president versus the United States military, the Department of Defense, do you have a sense that the president has more power ultimately? So to decrease the size of the Department of Defense, to withdraw from any wars or increase the amount of wars? Is the president, you're kind of implying the president has a lot of power here in this scale. Yes, the president has a lot of power and we are fortunate, and it, it was just proven in the last few years, that our military uniquely among many countries with large militaries is very deferential to the president and very restricted in its ability to challenge the president. Um, so that's a strength of our system. But the way you reform the military is not with individual decisions. It's by, have a, by having a strategic plan that re-examines what role it plays. So it's not just about whether we're in Afghanistan or not. The question we have to ask is, when we look at our toolbox of what we can do in our foreign policy, are there other tools we should build up and therefore some tools from the military we should reduce? That's the broader strategic question. Let me ask you the most absurd question of all that you did not sign up for, but it's especially, I've been hanging out with a guy named Joe Rogan recently. Sure. So it's very important um, for, for, me, for me and him to figure this out. If a president, because you said you implied the president is very powerful. If a president shows up and, and the US government is in fact in possession of aliens, 
alien spacecraft. Do you think the president will be told? A more responsible adult historian question version of that is, uh, is there some things that the machine of government keeps secret from the president or is the president ultimately at the very center? So if you like map out the set of information and power, you have, you have like CIA, you have all these organizations that like, that do the, um, the machinery of government, not just like the passing of bills, but like uh, gaining information, ho uh, homeland security, uh, actually like engaging in wars, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, how central is the president? Would the president know some of the shady things that are going on? A aliens or some kind of cybersecurity stuff against Russia and China, all those kinds of things. Is the president really made aware? And how, if so, how nervous does that make you? So um, presidents, like leaders of any complex organizations, uh, don't know everything that goes on. Uh, they have to ask the right questions. This is Machiavelli. Most important thing a leader has to do is ask the right questions. You don't have to know the answers. That's why you hire smart people but you have to ask the right questions. So if the president asks uh, the US government, those who are responsible for the aliens or responsible for the cyber warfare against Russia, they will answer honestly, they will have to, um, but they will not volunteer that information in all cases. So the best way a president can operate is to have people around him or her who are not the traditional policymakers. This is where I think academic experts are important, suggesting questions to ask to therefore try to get the information. It makes me nervous because I think human nature is such that the, uh, the academics, the experts, everybody is almost afraid to ask the questions for which the answers might uh, be burdensome. Yes, and so that's the, right. And, and you can get into a lot of trouble not asking, it's the old elephant in the room. <laughs> Correct, correct. This is exactly right. And too often, mediocre leaders and those who try to protect them try to shield themselves. They don't want to know certain things. So this is part of what happened with the use of torture by the United States, which is a war crime, um, during the war on terror. Uh, President Bush, at times, intentionally did not ask, and people around him prevented him from asking or discouraged him from asking questions he should have asked to know about what was going on. And that's how we ended up where we did. Uh, you could say the same thing about Reagan and Iran-Contra. I wonder what it takes to be the kind of leader that steps in and asks some difficult questions. So aliens is one, UFO spacecraft, right? Uh, another one, yeah, torture is another one. The CIA, how much information is being collected about Americans? I can see as a president being very uncomfortable asking that question. Because if the answer is a lot of information is being collected by, of Americans, then you have to be the guy who lives with that information. For the rest of your life, you have to walk around. You're probably not going to reform that system. It's very difficult. You have to. You probably have to be very picky about which things you reform. You don't have much time. It takes a lot of sort of effort to restructure things. But you nevertheless would have to be basically lying to. Uh, to the you know to 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 yourself to others around you about the unethical things depends of course what your uh, the ethical system is. I wonder what it takes to ask those hard questions. I wonder if 
how few of us are can be great leaders like that. And I wonder if our political system, the electoral system, is such that makes it likely that such leaders will come to power. It's hard and you can't ask all the right questions and there is uh, a legal hazard if you know things at certain times. But I think you can, back to your point on hiring, you can hire people who will do that in their domains. And then you have to trust that when they think it's something that's a question you need to ask, they'll pass that on to you. Uh, this is why it's not a good idea to have loyalists because loyalists will shield you from things. It's a good idea to have people of integrity uh, who you can rely on and who you think will ask those right questions and then pass that down through their organization. What's inspiring to you, what's insightful to you about several of the presidencies throughout the recent decades? Is there somebody that stands out to you that's interesting in, in sort of in your study of how the office has changed? Well, Bill Clinton is one of the most <laughs> fascinating figures. Why can't I, I apologize? Bill Clinton just puts a smile on my face every time somebody mentions him at this point. I don't know why. He's, <laughs> it's charisma, I suppose. Well, and he's a uh, he's he's a unique <laughs> individual, but but uh, he um, he fascinates me uh, because he's a figure of such enormous talent, and enormous appetite, and such little self control, uh, and such uh, extremes, uh, and and I think it's not just that he tells us something about the presidency; he tells us something about our society. Uh, you know, American society. This is not new to our time. is filled with enormous enormous reservoirs of talent and creativity. And those have a bright and a dark side. And you see both with Bill Clinton. In some ways, he's the mirror of the best and worst of our society. And maybe that's really what presidents are in the end, right? They're mirrors of our world, that we get the government we deserve, we get the leaders we deserve. I wish we embraced that a little bit more. You know, a lot of people criticize you know, Donald Trump for certain human qualities that he has. A lot of people criticize Bill Clinton for certain human qualities. I wish we kind of embraced the chaos of that, I, you know? Because he, he does, you're right, in some sense represent, I mean, he doesn't represent the greatest ideal of America, but the, the flawed aspect of human nature is what he represents. And that's the beautiful thing about America, the diversity of this land with the, the, the mix of it, the, the, the corruption of, of within capitalism, the, the, the beauty of capitalism, the innovation, all those kinds of things, the people that f start from nothing and create everything, the Elon Musks of the world That's and the right. Bill Gates and so on, but also the people, Bernie Madoffs and, 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 and all as the Me Too movement has showed the, the multitude of creeps that apparently <laughs> <laughs> permeate the, uh, the entirety of our system. So I don't know, there's something, um, there, there is some sense in which we put our president on a pedestal which actually creates a fake human being. Like we, the, the standard we hold them to is forcing the fake politicians to come to power versus the authentic one, which is in some sense, the promise of Donald Trump is uh, a, like, it's a, it's, a, it's a definitive statement of authenticity. It's like this, the opposite of the fake politician It's whatever else you wanna say about him is there's, the, the the chaos that's unlike anything else that uh, came before. One thing, and this is a particular maybe preference and quirk of mine, but I really admire, maybe I'm romanticizing the past again, but I romanticized the presidents that were students of history. Yeah. Uh, they were almost like king philosophers, you know, great, gr you know, that made speeches that, um, 
you know, reverberated through decades after, right? And we, we kind of, using the words of those presidents, whether written by them or not, we tell the story of America. And I don't know, this, even Obama has been an exceptionally good, as far as I know, I apologize if I'm incorrect on this, but it, from everything I've seen, he was a very deep scholar of history. And I really admire that. Is that through the through the history of the office of the presidency, is that just your own preference or is that supposed to come with a job? Are you supposed to be a student of history? I think, I mean, I'm obviously biased as a historian, but I do think it comes with a job. Every president I've studied uh, had a serious interest in history. Now, how they pursued that interest would vary. Uh, Obama was more bookish, more academic. Uh, so was George W. Bush in strange ways. George H.W. Bush was less so, but George H.W. Bush loved to talk to people, so he would talk mm -hmm. to historians, right? Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan uh, loved movies, and movies were uh, an insight into history for him. He liked to watch movies about another time. It wasn't always the best of history, but he was interested in what is a fundamental historical question. How has, how has our society developed? How has it grown and changed over time? And how has that change affected who we are today? That's the historical question. It's really interesting to me. I do a lot of work with business leaders and others too. Uh, you reach a certain point in any career and you become a historian mm -hmm. because you realize that the formulas and the technical knowledge that you've gained got you to where you are. But now your decisions are about human nature. Your decisions are about social change and they can't be answered technically. They can only be answered by studying human beings. And what is history? It's studying the laboratory of human behavior. To sort of play devil's advocate, I kind of, especially in the uh, engineering scientific domains, I often see history holding us back. <laughs> sort of uh, the way things were done in the past are not necessarily going to hold the key to what uh, will progress us into the future. Of course, with history and studying human nature, it does seem like humans are just the same. <laughs> it's just like the same problems over and over. Yes. Yes. So in that sense, it feels like history has all the lessons, whether we're talking about wars, whether we're talking about corruption, whether we're talking about economics. I think there's a difference between um, history and antiquarianism. Mm -hmm. So antiquarianism, which some people call history, uh, is the desire to go back to the past or stay stuck in the past. So antiquarianism is the desire to have the desk that Abraham Lincoln sat at. Wouldn't it be cool to sit at his desk? Yes. I'd love to have that desk. If I had a few extra million dollars, I'd acquire it, right? So in a way, uh, that's antiquarianism. That's trying to capture and hold on, hold on to the past. The past is a talisman mm -hmm. uh, for antiquarians. Um, what history is, is the study of change over time. That's the real definition of historical study and historical thinking. And so what we're studying is change. And so a historian should never say, um, we have to do things the way we've done them in the past. The historian should say, we can't do them the way we did them in the past. We can't step in the same river twice. Every podcast of yours is different from the last one, right? You plan it out and then it goes in its own direction, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, what are we studying then in history? We're studying the patterns of change and we're recognizing we're part of a pattern. So what I would say to the historian who's trying to hold the engineer back, I'd say, no, don't tell that engineer not to do this. Tell them to understand how this fits 
into the relationship with other engineering products and other activities from the past that still affect us today. For example, any product you produce is going to be used by human beings who have prejudices. It's gonna go into an unequal society. Don't assume it's gonna go into an equal society. Don't assume that when you create a social media site that people are going to use it fairly and put only truthful things on it. Mm -hmm. uh, we shouldn't be surprised. That's where human nature comes in. But it's not trying to hold on to the past. It's trying to use the knowledge in the past to better inform the changes today. I have to ask you about George Washington. It maybe maybe you have some insights. It seems like he's such a fascinating figure in the context of the study of power. Because I kind of intuitively have come to internalize the belief that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes. And then and <laughs> And sort of like, basically in thinking that we have to, we cannot trust any one individual. I can't trust myself with power. I can't, nobody can trust anybody with power. We have to create institutions and structures that prevent us from ever being able to amass absolute power. And yet here's a guy, George Washington, who seems to, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he seems to give away, relinquish power. Uh, it feels like George Washington did it like almost like the purest of ways, which is uh, believes in this country, but he just believes he's not the person to to uh, to uh, to carry it f forward. I, what, what do you make of that? What what kind of human does it take to to give away that power? Is there some hopeful message we can carry through to the future to 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 elect leaders like that, or to or to uh, find friends to hang out with who are like that? Like, what is that? How so, do you explain that? So it's uh, it, it's actually the most important thing about George Washington. It's the right thing to, to bring up. Um, what uh, the historian Gary Wills wrote years ago, I'm gonna quote him, was that Washington recognized that sometimes you get more power by giving it up than by trying to hold on to every last piece of it. Uh, Washington gives up power at the end of the revolution. He's successfully carried through the Revolutionary War aims. He's commander of the revolutionary forces and he gives up his command. And then of course he's president and after two terms he gives up his command. What is he doing? He's an ambitious person, but he's recognizing that the most important currency he has for power is his respected status as a disinterested statesman. That's really what his power is. And how does he further that power? By showing that he doesn't crave power. So he was self-aware. Very self-aware of this and very sophisticated in understanding understanding this. And and I think there are many other leaders who, who recognize that. Um, you can look to, uh, in some ways, um, the story of many of our presidents who, even before there is a two-term limit in the Constitution, leave after two terms, um, they do that because they recognize that their power is the power of being a statesman, um, not of being a president. I still wonder what kind of man it takes, what kind of human being it takes to do that. Because I've been studying Vladimir Putin quite a bit. Right. And he's still, I believe he still has popular support, that that's not fully manipulated because I know a lot of people in Russia and actually the, almost the entirety of my family in Russia are big supporters of Putin. And everybody I talk to sort of, that's not just like on social media. Right. Like the people that live in Russia seems right. to seem to support him. It feels like this will be uh, in a George Washington way, 
now would be the time that would P Putin, just like Yeltsin, could relinquish power and thereby, in the eyes of Russians, become in the, in like the long arc of history, be viewed as a great leader. You look at the economic growth of Russia, you look at the rescue from the collapse of the Soviet Union and Russia finding its footing and then relinquishing power in a way that, that perhaps if Russia succeeds, forms a truly democratic state. Mm -hmm. This would be how Putin can become one of the great leaders in Russian history, uh, at least in the, in, the, in the context of the 21st century. I think there are two reasons why this is really hard uh, for Putin and for others. Uh, one is the trappings of power are very seductive. As you said before, they're corrupting. This is a real problem, right? Uh, if it's in the business context, you don't wanna give up that private jet. Uh, if it's in Putin's context, it's billions of dollars every year that he's able to take for himself or give to his friends. It's not that he'll be poor if he leaves, he'll still be rich and he has billions of dollars stored away, but he won't be able to get the new billions. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of it. The trappings of power are, are a big deal. And then second, uh, in Putin's case in particular, he has to be worried about what happens next. Will he be tried? Will someone you know, try to come and arrest him? Will someone try to come and assassinate him? Um, Washington recognized that leaving early limited the corruption and limited the enemies that you made. And so it was a strategic choice. Uh, Putin has at this point been in power too long. And, and this comes back to your core insight. It's a cliche, but it's true. Power corrupts. No one should have power for too long. This was one of the best insights the founders of the United States had, that power was to be held for a short time as a fiduciary responsibility, not as something you owned, right? This is the problem with monarchy, with aristocracy, that you own power, right? We don't own power. We, we are in holding it in trust. Yeah, there's uh, there's some probably like very specific psychological study of uh, how many years it takes for you to forget that you can't own power. That's right. There's you know that's could be a, a much more rigorous discussion about the length of terms that are appropriate, but really there's an amount like Stalin had power for thirty years, like Putin is pushing th those that many years already. There's a certain point where you forget the person you were before you took the power. That's right. You forget to be humble in the face of this responsibility. And then there's no going back. That's right. And that's how dictators are born. That's how the evil, like authoritarians become evil. Or well, let's not use the word evil, but uh, counterproductive, destructive to the, to the ideal that they initially probably came to office with. That's right. That's right. One of the core historical insights is people should move jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's applies for CEOs probably. <laughs> Absolutely. Perhaps they can go become CEO somewhere else, but don't stay CEO one place too long. It, it's a problem with startups, right? The founder, you can have a brilliant founder and that founder doesn't want to let go. Yeah. Right, it's the same issue. At the same time, I mean, this is where Elon Musk and a few others like uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, that stayed for quite a long time and they actually were the beacon. They, on their shoulders, carried the dream of the company yeah. where everybody else doubted. So, But that seems to be the exception right. versus the rule. Well, and even Sergey, for example, right, has stepped back, right? He plays less of a day-to-day -day role and is not running Google in the way he but did. But the interesting thing is he stepped back in a quite tragic way yeah. from what I've seen, which is, I think Google's mission, initial mission of uh, making the world's information accessible to everybody 
is one of the most beautiful missions of any company in the history of the world. I think it's what Google has done with a search engine and um, and other efforts that are similar, like scanning a lot of books. Sure. It's just it's incredible. Yeah. It's similar to like Wikipedia. But what he said was that it's not the same company anymore. And I, I know maybe I'm reading too much into it because it's more maybe practically saying just the size of the company is much larger, the kind of leadership that's required. But at the same time, sure. they changed the motto from, you know, uh, don't be evil to it's becoming corporatized and all those kinds of things. And it's sad. It um, There also are cycles, right? History is about cycles, right? There, there, there are cycles to life. There are cycles to organizations. It's sad. I mean, it's sad. Steve Jobs leaving Apple by passing away. Sad. You know, what the future of SpaceX and Tesla looks like without Elon Musk is quite sad. It's very possible that those companies become something very different. They become something much more, you know, like corporate and uh, stale. Yeah, so maybe maybe most of the progress is made through cycles. Maybe a new Elon Musk comes along, all those kinds of things. But it does seem that the American system of government has has uh, built into it the cycling. Yes. That makes it effective and it makes it last very long. It lasts a very long time, right? It, it continues to excel and lead the world. Sure, sure. And let's hope it continues to. No, it's, ex I mean, we, we're into, you know, our third century and democracies on this scale uh, rarely last that long. So that that's that's a point of pride, but it also means we need to be attentive to keep our house in order because it's not inevitable that this experiment continues. No, it's important to meditate on that actually. Uh, you've mentioned that FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt is uh, one of the great leaders in American history. Why is that? Franklin Roosevelt had the power of empathy. <laughs> no leader that I have ever studied or been around or spent any time reading about was able to connect with people who were so different from himself as Franklin Roosevelt. He came from the most elite family. He never had to work for a paycheck in his life. When he was president, he was still collecting an allowance from his mom. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't be more elite than Franklin Roosevelt, but he authentically connected. This was not you know, propaganda. He was able to feel the pain and understand the lives of some of the most destitute Americans in other parts of the country. It's interesting. So through the through one of the hardest economic periods of American history, he was able to feel the pain. He was able to feel the number of immigrants I read oral histories from or who have written themselves. Saul Bellow was one example, the great novelist who talk about how as immigrants to the U.S., Saul Bellow was a Russian Jewish immigrant. He said, growing up in Chicago, politicians were all trying to steal from us. I didn't think any of them cared until I heard FDR. And I knew he spoke to me. Uh, and And I think... Part of it was FDR really tried to understand people. That's the first thing, he was humble enough to try to do that. But second, he had a talent for that and it's hard to know exactly what it was, but he had a talent for putting himself, imagining himself in someone else's shoes. What uh, stands out to you as uh, important? I mean, he, so he was, uh, he went through the Great Depression. The, so the New Deal, which some people criticize, some people see, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny to look at some of these policies and their long uh, ripple effects, but at the time, it's some of the most uh, innovative policies yes. in, the, in the history of America. You could say they're, they're ultimately not good for America, but they're nevertheless 
hold within them very rich and important lessons. But the New Deal, obviously World War II, uh, that entire process, is there something that stands out to you as a particularly great moment that made FDR? Yes, I think uh, what FDR does from his first 100 days in office forward, and this begins with his fireside chats, is he helps Americans to see that they're all in it together. And that's by creating hope and creating a sense of common suffering and common mission. It's not offering simple solutions. One of the lessons from FDR is, if you wanna bring people together, don't offer a simple solution. Because as soon as I offer a simple solution, I have people for it and against it. <laughs> don't do that. Explain the problem, frame the problem, and then give people a mission. So Roosevelt's first uh, radio address uh, in March of 1933, the banking system is collapsing. And we can't imagine it, right? Banks were closing and you couldn't get your money out. Your life savings would be lost, right? We can't imagine that happening in our world today. He comes on the radio, he takes five minutes to explain how banking works. Most people didn't understand how banking worked, right? They don't actually hold your money in a vault. Mm -hmm. They lend it out to someone else. And then he explains why if you go and take your money out of the bank and put it in your mattress, you're making it worse for yourself. Mm -hmm. He explains this. Uh, and then he says, I don't, he does, I, I don't have a solution, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna send in government uh, officers to examine the banks and show you the books on the banks. And I want you to help me by going and putting your money back in the banks. We're all gonna do this together. No simple solution, no ideological statement, but a sense of common mission. Let's go out and do this together. When you read, as I have, so many of these oral histories and memoirs for people who lived through that period, many of them disagreed with some of his policies. Many of them thought he was too close to Jews and they didn't like the fact he had a woman in his cabinet and all that, mm -hmm. but they felt he cared and they felt they were part of some common mission. And when they talk about their experience fighting in World War II, whether in Europe or Asia, it was that that prepared them. They knew what it meant to be an American when they were over there. Uh, so th that to me is a model of leadership. And I think that's as possible today as it's ever been. So you think it's possible? Like I, I was going to ask this, Again, it may be a very shallow view, but it feels like this country is is more divided than it has been in uh, recent history. Perhaps the social media and all those kinds of things are merely revealing the division as opposed to creating the division. But is it possible to have a leader that unites in the same way that FDR did without, well, we're living through a pandemic this is already, yes. very, so like I was gonna say without suffering, but there, well, this is economic suffering. A right. huge number of people right. have lost their job. So is it possible to have, uh, is there one a hunger? Is, is there a possibility to have an FDR style leader who unites? Yes, I think that is what President Biden is trying. I'm not saying he. I'm not saying he'll he'll succeed, but I think that's what he's trying to do. The way you do this is you do not allow yourself to be captured by your opponents in Congress or somewhere else. FDR had a lot of opponents in Congress. He had a lot of opponents in politics, governors and others who didn't like him. Uh, Herbert Hoover was still around <laughs> and still accusing FDR of being, you know, a conspiratist and all these other things. So. Um, you don't allow yourself to be captured by the leaders of the other side. You go over their heads to the people. And so today, the way to do this is to explain to people and empathize with the suffering and dislocation and difficulties they're dealing with and show that you're trying to help them. Not an easy solution, 
Not a simple statement, but here are some things we can all do together. That's why I think infrastructure makes a lot of sense. It's what FDR invested in too, yeah. right? FDR built Hoover Dam. Hoover Dam turned the lights on for young Lyndon Johnson who grew up outside of Austin, right? FDR was the one who invested in road construction that was then continued by uh, Dwight Eisenhower, by a Republican with the interstate highway system, right? Uh, FDR invested through the WPA in building thousands of schools in our country, planting trees. That's the kind of work that can bring people together. You don't have to be a Democrat or a Republican to say, you know what? We'd be a lot better off in my community if we had better infrastructure today. I wanna be a part of that. Oh, well, maybe I can get a job doing that. Maybe my company can benefit from that. You bring people together and that way it becomes a common mission, even if we have different ideological positions. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've, uh, when I first heard Joe Biden, I many, it's many years ago, I think he ran for president against Obama. That's correct. Right in the big, I, before I heard him speak, I really liked him. But once I heard him speak, I stopped, I started liking him less and less. And it speaks to something interesting where it's hard to put into words what, why you connect with people. The empathy that you mentioned in FDR, you have like these bad, pardon the French motherfuckers like Teddy Roosevelt that connect with you. There's something just powerful. And with Joe Biden, I can't, I, I want to really like him. And I, there's something not quite there where it feels like he doesn't quite know my pain. Yep. Even though he, on paper, is exactly, you know, he knows the pain of the people and there's something not connecting. And it's it's hard to explain. It's hard to put into words. And uh, it makes me not, <laughs> uh, as an engineer and scientist, it makes me not feel good about like presidencies because it makes me feel like it's more art than science. <laughs> it, it is an art. And, and I think it's exactly an art for the reasons you laid out. It's aesthetic. It's yeah. about feeling. It's about yeah. emotion. All the things that we can't engineer. We've tried for centuries to engineer emotion. We're never going to do it. Don't try it. I'm a parent of teenagers. Don't even try to explain emotion. Yeah. Um, but you hit on the key point and the key challenge for Biden. He's got to find the right words. Yeah. It's not finding the words to bullshit people. Yeah, It's finding the words to help express. We've all felt empowered and felt good when someone uses words that put into words what we're feeling. Yeah, That's what he needs. That's the job of a leader. And there's certain words, I haven't heard it, many politicians use those words, but there's certain words that like make you forget th that, uh, that you're for immigration or uh, against immigration, make you forget whether you're for wars and against wars, make you forget about like the, the bickering and somehow like uh, inspire you, like elevate you to believe in the greatness that this country could be. Yes. Um, in that same way, like the reason I moved to Austin, it's, it's funny to say is like, I just heard words from people, from friends, where they're excited by the possibility of the future here. I wasn't thinking like, what's the right thing to do? What's the like, strategic, because I want to launch a business. Uh, there's a lot of arguments for San Francisco or maybe staying in Boston in my case, but there's this excitement that, that was beyond reason. That was emotional. That yes, was, yes. And that, yeah. that's, that's what it seems like. That's what builds, that's what great leaders do, but that's what builds countries. That's what builds great, great businesses. That's right. And, and it's what people say about Austin, for example, all the time, yeah. a talented people who come here like yourself. And here's the interesting thing. No one person creates that. The yeah. words emerge. Yeah. And part of what FDR understood is you've got to find the words out there and use them. Yeah. You don't have to be the creator of them. 
right? Just as the great painter doesn't invent the painting, they're taking things from others. As a small aside, is there something you could say about FDR and Hitler? I'm, I constantly tried to think, can, can this person, can this moment in history have been um, circumvented, prevented? Can Hitler have been stopped? Can this, some of the atrocities for my own family that like my grandparents had to live through the, the starvation in the Soviet Union. So the, the thing that people don't often talk about is the atrocities committed by Stalin and his own people. It feels like here's this great leader, FDR, that had the chance to, um, to have an impact on the world that, um, he already probably had a great positive impact, but had a had a chance to stop maybe World War II or st stop some of the evils. When you look at what how weak Hitler was from much of the 30s relative to militarily, relative to everything else, how many people could have done a lot to stop him? And FDR in particular didn't. He tried to play, um, not pacify, but basically do diplomacy and let let Germany do Germany, let Europe do Europe and focus on America. Is there is there something you would, uh, would you hold his feet to the fire on this? Or is it uh, very difficult from the perspective of FDR to have known what was coming? I think FDR had a sense of what was coming, not quite the enormity of what Hitler was doing and not quite the enormity of what the Holocaust became. I also lost relatives in the Holocaust. Um, uh, and part of that was beyond the imagination of human beings. Yes. But it's clear in his papers um, that as early as 1934, people he respected, who he knew well, told him that Hitler was very dangerous. They also thought Hitler was crazy, that he was a lunatic. Hamilton Fish Armstrong, who was a friend of, of uh, Roosevelt, uh, who was actually the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, had a meeting with Hitler in 1934. I remember reading the account of this. Uh, and he basically said to FDR, this man is going to cause a war. He's going to cause a lot of damage. Again, they didn't know quite the scale. So they saw this coming. They saw this coming. FDR had two problems. First, he had an American public that was deeply isolationist. The opposite of the problem in a sense that we were talking about before. If we're an over-militarized society, now we were a deeply isolationist society uh, in the 1930s. The, the Depression reinforced that. FDR actually had to break the law in the late 30s to support the Allies. <laughs> So um, it was very hard to move the country in that direction, especially when he had this program at home, uh, the New Deal, that he didn't want to jeopardize by alienating an isolationist public. That was the reality. We talked about political manipulation. He had to be conscious of that. He had to know his audience. Um, and second, uh, there were no allies willing to <laughs> invest in this either. The British were as uh, as committed to appeasement, as you know. You're obviously very knowledgeable about this. The, the French were as well. It was very hard. The, the Russian government, the Soviet government, was cooperating to remilitarize Germany. So there weren't a lot of allies out there either. Um, I think if there's a criticism to be made of FDR, it's that once we're in the war, he didn't do enough to stop, in particular, the killing of Jews. And there are a number of historians, myself included, who have written about this, and it's an endless debate. What should he have done? There's no doubt by 1944, the United States had uh, air superiority and could have bombed the rail lines to Auschwitz and other camps. And that would have saved as many as a million Jews. That's a lot of people who could have been saved. Why didn't FDR insist on that? Um, in part because he wanted to use every resource possible to win the war. 
He did not want to be accused of fighting the war for Jews. But I think it's also fair to say that he probably cared less about Jews and East Europeans than he did about others, um, those of his own Dutch ancestry and, and from Western Europe. And so, you know, even there, race comes in. is also the explanation for the internment of Japanese in the United States, which is a horrible war crime committed by this heroic president. 120,000 Japanese-American citizens lost their freedom unnecessarily. So he had his limitations, and, and I think he could have done more during the war to save many more lives, and I wish he had. And there's something to be said about empathy, that you spoke that FDR had empathy, but us, for example, now there's uh, many people who describe the atrocities happening in China, and, and there's a bunch of places across the world where there's atrocities happening now, and we care. We do not uniformly apply how much we care for the suffering of others. That's correct. Depending on the group. That's correct. And in some sense, the role of the president is to uh, to uh, rise above that natural human inclination to protect, to do the us versus them, to protect, protect the inner circle and empathize with the suffering of those that are un not like you. That's correct. I agree with that. Yeah. Speaking of war, you wrote a book on Henry Kissinger. <laughs> It's not a great transition, but it made sense in my head. <laughs> Who was Henry Kissinger as a man and as a historical figure? So Henry Kissinger to me is one of the most fascinating figures in history because he comes to the United States as a German Jewish immigrant at age 15, speaking no English. And within a few years, uh, he's a major figure uh, influencing U.S. foreign policy at the height of U.S. power. Uh, but while he's doing that, he, he's never elected to office. And he's constantly reviled by people, including people who are anti-Semitic because he's Jewish. Uh, but at the same time, also his uh, exoticism makes him more attractive to people. So someone like Nelson Rockefeller wants Kissinger around. He's one of Kissinger's first patrons because he wants a really smart Jew. <laughs> and Kissinger's gonna be that smart Jew. I call Kissinger a policy Jew. There were these court Jews in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries in Europe. Every king wanted the Jew to manage his banking. And in a sense, in the United States, in the second half of the 20th century, many presidents want a Jew to manage their international affairs. And what does that really mean? It's not just about being Jewish, yeah. it's the internationalism, it's the cosmopolitanism. Uh, and that's one of the things I was fascinated with with Kissinger. Someone like Kissinger is unthinkable as a powerful figure in the United States 30 or 40 years earlier, because the United States is run by wasps. It's run by uh, white elites who come from a certain background. Uh, Kissinger represents a moment when American society opens up, not to everyone, but opens up to these cosmopolitan figures who have language skills, historical knowledge, networks that can be used for the US government when after World War II, we have to rebuild Europe, when we have to negotiate with the Soviet Union, when we need the kinds of knowledge we didn't have before. And Harvard, where he gets his education late, he started at City College actually, but Harvard, where he gets his education late, is at the center of what's happening at all these major universities, at Harvard, at Yale, at Stanford, at the University of Texas, everywhere, where they're growing in their international affairs, bringing in the kinds of people who never would be at the university before, training them, and then enlisting them in Cold War activities. And so Kissinger is a representative of that phenomenon. I became interested in him because I think he's a bellwether. He shows how power has changed in the United States. So he enters this whole world of uh, politics, what, post-World War II in the 50s? Yes, so he, he actually, 
in the 40s even. It's an extraordinary story. You know, he comes to the United States in 1938, just before Kristallnacht. His family leaves. They, they, he actually grew up right outside of Nuremberg. They leave uh, right before Kristallnacht uh, in, in fall of 38. Come to, come to New York. He originally works in a brush factory cleaning brushes, goes to a public high school. And in 1942, just after Pearl Harbor, he joins the military. And he's very quickly in the military, first of all, given citizenship, which he didn't have before. Mm. Uh, he's sent for the first time outside of a kosher home. He had been in a kosher home his entire life. He's sent to South Carolina to eat ham for Uncle Sam. <laughs> and <laughs> nice. then he is, and this is extraordinary, at, at the age of 20, uh, barely speaking English, uh, he is sent back to Germany with the US Army in an elite counterintelligence role. Why? Wow. Because they need German speakers. He came when he was 15, so he actually understands the society. They need people who have that cultural knowledge. Mm -hmm. And because he's Jewish, they can trust that he'll be anti-Nazi. And there's a whole group of these figures. Uh, he's one of many. And so he's in an elite circle. He's, he's discriminated against in New York. When he goes to Harvard after that, he can only live in a Jewish-only dorm. But at the same time, he's in an elite policy role mm -hmm. in counterintelligence. He forms a network there that stays with him the rest of his uh, career. Uh, there's a gentleman named Fritz Kramer who becomes a sponsor of his uh, in the emerging Pentagon Defense Department world. And as early as the early 1950s, he's sent then to Korea to comment on affairs in Korea. He becomes both an intellectual recognized for his connections, but also someone who policymakers wanna talk about. His book on nuclear weapons, when it's written, is given to President Eisenhower to read because they say this is someone writing interesting things. You should read what he says. There's a certain aspect to him that's kind of like Forrest Gump. He seems to continuously be the right person at the right time in the right place. That's right. <laughs> Somehow finding him in this. I don't. I, I don't want to. You know, you can only get lucky <laughs> so many times because he continues to get lucky in terms of being at the right place in in history for many decades until he, today. Yeah, well, he has a knack for that. He, I, I spent a lot of time talking with him. Um, and what comes through very quickly is that he has an eye for power. Uh, it, it's, I think, unhealthy. He's obsessed with power. Can you explain like an observer of power yes. or, this, or being, uh, does he want power himself? Yes, both of those things. Both of those, and, and I think I explain this in the book. Uh, he doesn't agree with what I'm going to say now, um, but I think I'm right, and I think he's right. I think it's very hard to analyze yourself, right? Yeah. Um, I think he develops an obsession with gaining power because he sees what happens when you have no power. He experiences the trauma. His uh, father is a very respected gymnasium lehrer in Germany, even though he's. Jewish, he's actually the teacher of German classics to the German kids. This is great. And he's forced to flee and he becomes nothing. His father never really makes a way for himself in the United States. He becomes a postal delivery person, which is nothing wrong with that. But for someone who's a respected teacher in Germany and Gymnasium Lehrer, are like professors there, right? To then be in this position, his mother has to open a catering business when they come to New York. It's a, t it's a typical immigrant story, mm -hmm. but he sees the trauma. He, his grandparents are killed by the Nazis. Um, so he sees the trauma and he realizes how perilous it is to be without power. And you're saying he does not want to acknowledge the, the effect of that. It's hard, it's hard. I mean, most of us, if we've had trauma 
it's believable that it's traumatic because you don't talk about it. I have a, a friend who interviews uh, combat veterans, and he says, as soon as someone freely wants to tell me about their combat trauma, I suspect that they're not telling me the truth. If it's traumatic, it's hard to talk about. Yeah, sometimes I wonder how much for my own life, everything that I've ever done is just the result of my, the complicated relationship with my father. I, <laughs> I tend to, I had a really difficult time. I did a podcast conversation with him. I saw yeah. it actually. Yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> it was, I, I was I thinking I could everything. never do that with my <laughs> But I, I remember as I was doing it and for months after I regretted doing it, I just kept regretting it. And the fact that I was regretting it spoke to the, to the fact that I'm running away from some truths that are back there somewhere. And that, that's perhaps what Kissinger is as well. But is there, I mean, he's done, he's been a part of so many interesting moments of American history, of world history, from uh, the Cold War, Vietnam War, until today. What stands out to you as a particularly important moment um, in his career that, that, that made who he is? Well, I think uh, what made his career in, in many ways uh, was uh, his experience in the 1950s building a network, uh, a network of people uh, across the world who were rising uh, leaders from unique positions. Mm -hmm. He ran what he called the International Seminar at Harvard, um, which was actually a summer school class that no one at Harvard cared about. <laughs> but he invited all of these um rising intellectuals and thinkers from around the world. And he built a network there that he, that he used uh, forevermore. So that's what really, I think, boosts him. Um, the most important moments in terms of making his reputation and making his career are two sets of activities. One is the opening to China um, and his ability to, first of all, take control of US policy without the authority to do that and direct US policy and then build a relationship with Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai that was unthinkable just four or five years earlier. Uh, of course, President Nixon is a big part of that as well, but Kissinger is the mover and shaker on that. And it's a lot of manipulation, but it's also a vision. Now, this is in the moment of uh, American history where there's a very powerful anti-communism. Correct. So communism is seen as uh, much more even though, than today as the enemy. Correct. And China in particular, they were one of our key enemies in uh, Vietnam. And in Korea, American forces were fighting Chinese forces directly. Chinese forces come over the border. Uh, thousands of Americans die at the hand of Chinese forces, right? So for the United, long time, the United States had no relationship with communist China. He opens that relationship. And at the same time, uh, he also creates a whole new dynamic in the Middle East. After the 1973 war, the so-called Yom Kippur War, he steps in and becomes the leading negotiator between the Israelis, the Egyptians, and other major actors in the region. And it makes the United States the most powerful actor in the Middle East, the Soviet Union far less powerful, which is great for the United States in the 70s and 80s. It gets us, though, into the problems we, of course, have uh, thereafter. So that, that speaks to the very pragmatic approach that he's taken um, the realistic approach versus the idealistic approach, uh, the termed uh, realpolitik. What is this thing? What is what is this approach to world politics? So realpolitik for Kissinger is um, really focusing on the power centers in the world and trying as best you can to manipulate those power centers to serve the interests of your own country. 
And so that's why he's a multilateralist. He's not a unilateralist. He believes the United States should put itself at the center of negotiations between other powerful countries. But that's also why he pays very little attention to countries that are less powerful. And this is why he's often criticized by human rights activists. For him, parts of Africa and Latin America, which you and I would consider important places, are unimportant because they don't have power. They can't project their power. They don't produce a lot of economic wealth. And so they matter less. Realpolitik views the world in a hierarchy of power. How does realpolitik realize itself in the world? What, what, is, what does that really mean? Like, how do you uh, push forward the interests of your own country? You said there's power centers, but it uh, is, a, is a big, bold move to negotiate, to work with a communist nation, to, with your enemies that are powerful. How, what is the sort of, if you can further elaborate the sure. philosophy behind it? Sure. So there, there, there are two key elements that then end up producing all kinds of tactics, but the two strategic elements of Kissinger's way of thinking about realpolitik, which are classical ways, going back to Thucydides and the Greeks, mm-hmm. uh, are to say, first of all, you figure out who your allies are and you build webs of connection so that your allies help you to acquire what you want to acquire. Right. This is why, according to Herodotus, the Greeks beat the Persians. The Persians are bigger, but the Greeks, the Spartans, the Athenians, others are able to work together and leverage their resources, right? So it's about leveraging your resources. For Kissinger, this makes Western Europe crucially important. It makes Japan crucially important. It makes Israel and Egypt crucially important, right? In building these webs, you build your surrogates, you build your brother states, In other parts of the world, you build tight connections and you work together to control the resources that you want. The second element of the strategy is not to go to war with your adversary, but to do all you can to limit the power of your adversary. Some of that is containment, uh, preventing uh, the Soviet Union from expanding. That was the key element of American Cold War policy. But sometimes it's actually negotiation. Um, That's what detente was about for Kissinger. He spends a lot of time, more time than any other American foreign policymaker negotiating with Soviet leaders, as well as Chinese leaders. What does he want to do? He wants to limit the nuclear arms race. The United States is ahead. We don't want the Soviet Union to get ahead of us. We negotiate um, to limit their abilities, right? We play to our strengths. Um, So it's a combination of keeping your adversary down and building tight webs. Um, Within that context, military force is used but you're not using war for the sake of war. Mm-hmm. You're using warfare to further your access to the resources, economic, political, geographic, that you want. To and that- build relationships, and then the second thing, to limit the powers of those you're against. Exactly. So uh, is there any uh, sort of um, insights into how he preferred to build relationships? Are we talking about, like again, it's, it's the one-on-one, is it through policy or is it through like phone conversations? Is there any c- cool kind of insights that you could speak to? Yeah, Kissinger is the uh, ultimate kiss up. <laughs> he is, uh, some, some used to make fun of him. In fact, even uh, the film, the the, the filmmaker uh, from Dr. Strangelove, whose name I'm forgetting, uh, right, Stanley Kubrick, yeah. called him kiss up at that time, <laughs> right? Um, he had a wonderful way of figuring out what it is you wanted, back to that discussion we had before, mm-hmm. and trying to show how he could give you more of what you wanted as a leader. It was very personalistic, uh, very personalistic. And uh, he spends a lot of time, for example, kissing up to Leonid Brezhnev, uh, kissing up to Mao. He tells Mao, you're the greatest leader in the history of the 20th century. People will look back on you as the great leader. 
some of this sounds like BS, but it's serious, right? He's feeding the egos of those around him. Second, um, he is willing to get things done for you. He's effective. You want him around you because of his efficacy. So Richard Nixon is always suspicious that Henry Kissinger is getting more of the limelight. He hates that Kissinger gets the Nobel Peace Prize and he doesn't, but he needs him because Kissinger's the guy who gets things done. So he performs, he builds a relationship in almost, I say this in the book, in almost a gangster way. He didn't like that. He criticized that part of the book. But again, I still think the evidence is there. Um, you need something to be done, boss, I'll do it. And don't forget that I'm doing this for you. <laughs> and you get mutual dependency in a Hegelian way, right? Yeah. And, and, and so he builds this uh, personal dependency through ego and through performance. And then he's so skillful at making decisions for people who are more powerful because he's never elected to office. He always needs powerful people to let him do things. But he convinces you it's your decision when it's really his. To read his memos are beautiful. He's actually very skilled at writing things in a way that look, looks like he's giving you options as president. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there's only one option there. Is he speaking to the gangster, to the loyalty, is he ever... Like the sense I got from Nixon is he would, Nixon would backstab you if he needed to. Uh, one of the things that I admire about gangsters is they don't backstab those in the inner circle, like loyalty above all else. I mean, at least that's uh, the sense I've gotten from the stories of the past, at least. Is uh, where would you put Kissinger on that? Is he loyalty above all all else? Or is it, or a human, it's like the Steve Jobs thing, is like, as long as you're useful, you're useful, but then once, you, long use, the moment you're no longer useful is uh, when you're knocked off the chessboard. It's the latter with him. He, he, he's backstabbing quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> and, and he's self-serving. Um, but he also makes himself so useful that even though Nixon knows he's doing that, Nixon still needs him. Yeah. By the way, on that... <laughs> A point, so having spoken with Kissinger, what's your relationship like with him as somebody who is in an objective way writing his story? It, it was very difficult because uh, he's very good at manipulating people. And uh, we, we had about 12 or 13 interviews, usually informal over lunch. Um, and um, and this was many years ago, but this is probably not more than 10 years ago. Um, Did you find yourself being like sweet talked, like to where you like go back home later and look in the mirror and it's like, wait, what just happened? He can be enormously charming and enormously obnoxious at the same time. So I would have these very mixed emotions <laughs> because he gives no ground. He, yeah. he He's unwilling to, and I think this is a weakness, he's unwilling to um, admit mistake. Uh, others make mistakes, but he doesn't. And he certainly won't take on any of the big criticisms that are that are pushed. I understand why. I mean, when you've worked as hard for what he has as he has, you're defensive about it. But he is very defensive. He's very fragile about it. He does not like criticisms at all. He, he used to, he hasn't done this in a while, but he used to call me up and yell at me on the phone, quite literally, when I would be quoted in the New York Times or somewhere uh, saying something that sounded critical of him. So for instance, there was one instance a number of years ago where uh, a reporter came across some documents where Kissinger said negative things about Jews in Russia, typical things that a German Jew would say about East European Jews. And the uh, New York Times asked me, is this accurate? And I said, yeah, the documents are accurate. I've seen them. They're accurate. He was so angry. 
about that. So, so there's the fragility, but there's also the enormous charm and the enormous intelligence. Um, the real challenge with him though is he's very good at making his case. He'll convince you. And as a scholar, as an, as an observer, you don't want to hear a lawyer's case. You want to actually interrogate the evidence and get to the truth. Mm -hmm. And so that was a real challenge with him. So speaking of his approach of realpolitik, if we just zoom out and look at human history, human civilization, what do you think works best in, uh, in the way we progress forward? A realistic approach, do whatever it takes, control the centers of power to play a game for the for the greater interests of uh, the good guys, quote unquote, or lead by a sort of idealism, which is uh, like truly act in the w in the best version of the ideas you represent, as opposed to kind of uh, present one view and then do whatever it takes right. in, in, right. in, uh, behind the scenes. Obviously, you need some of both, but I lean more to the idealistic side and more so, actually, believe it or not, the, as, as I get into my 40s, uh, as I do, <laughs> do more historical work. Why do I say that? Because I think, and this is one of my criticisms of Kissinger, who I also have a lot of respect for, the realpolitik becomes self-defeating because you're constantly running to keep power, but you forget why. And you often then use power, and I think Kissinger falls into this in, in some of his worst moments, not all of his moments, where the power is actually being used to undermine the things you care about. Mm. It's sort of the example of being a parent, and you're doing all these things to you know take your kid to violin, basketball, all these things, and you realize you're actually killing your kid and making your kid very unhappy. And the whole reason you were doing it was to improve the person's life. Yeah. And so you have to remember why it is. What, what a Hans Morgenthau calls this is your purpose. Your purpose has to drive you. Now, your purpose doesn't have to be airy-fairy idealism. So I, I believe deeply in democracy is an ideal. Mm. I don't think it's gonna ever look like Athenian democracy, but that should drive our policy. But we still have to be realistic and recognize we're not gonna build that democracy in Afghanistan tomorrow. I mean, does it ultimately just boil down again to the corrupting nature of power that um, nobody can hold power for very long before you start acting in the in the interest of power as opposed to in, in the interest of your ideals? It's impossible to be like somebody like Kissinger, who is essentially in power for many many decades, and and still remember what are the initial ideals that you strove to um, to achieve. Yes, I think that's exactly right. There, there's a, a moment in the book I quote uh, about, about him, comes from one of our interviews. I asked him, what were the guiding ideals for your policies? And he said, uh, I can't, I'm not prepared to share that. And I don't think it's because he doesn't know what he thinks he was trying to do. He realizes his use of power departed quite a lot. From so he it would sound if he made them explicit it would sound hypocritical correct. Well, on, on that let me ask about war. America often presents itself to its own people, but just the leaders when they look in the mirror, is, I get a sense that we think of ourselves as the good guys. Uh, in especially this begins sometimes to look hypocritical when you're waging war. Is, what's a good, um, is there a good way to know when you've lost all sense of what it is to be good? Um, 
another way to ask that, is there in military policy, in conducting war, is there a good way to know what is a just war and uh, what is a war crime? I mean, in some circles, Kissinger is accused of contributing, you know, being a war criminal. Yes, I, I and, and I argue in the book he's not a war criminal, but that doesn't mean that um, he didn't misuse military power. Um, I, I think um, a just war, war, a just war, as Michael Walls and others write about it, a just war is a war where both the purpose is just and you are using the means to get to that purpose that uh, kill as few people as necessary. That doesn't mean they won't be killing but as few as necessary, proportionality, right? Your your means should be proportional to your ends. And um, that's often lost sight of because the drive to get to the end often self-justifies means that go well beyond that. And so that's 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 how we get into torture in the war on terror, right? Is there some kind of lesson for the future Yes, you can take away from that. Yes, I, I think the, the the first set of lessons that I've shared as a historian with with military decision makers is, first of all, always remember why you're there, what your purpose is, and always ask yourself if the means you're using are actually proportional. Ask that question. Just because you have these means that you can use, just because you have these tools, doesn't mean they're the right tools to use. And here's the question that follows from that, and it's a it's a hard question to ask because the answer is one we often don't like to hear. Are the things I'm doing in war actually doing more harm or more good to the reason I went into war? Uh, we came to a point in the war on terror where what we were doing was actually creating more terrorists. And that's when you have to stop. Well, some of that is in the data, but some of it, there's a leap of faith. So from a parenting perspective, let me let me speak as a person with no kids and a single, <laughs> single guy. As an, let me be the expert in the room on parenting. No. Uh, it does seem that it's a very difficult thing to do to, um, even though you know that your kid is making a mistake, to let them make a mistake, to give them the freedom to make the mistake. Sure. I don't know what to do, but I mean, that's a very kind of light hearted way of phrasing the following, which is when you look at some of the places in the world, like Afghanistan, which is, not doing well. Right. To move out knowing that there's going to be a lot of suffering, economic suffering, injustices, um, terrorist organizations growing, that committing crimes on, on its own people and potentially committing crimes against allies, violence against allies, violence against the United States. Um, how do you know what to do in that? Case. <laughs> well, it, it, uh, again, it's an art, not a science, which is what makes it hard for you know an engineer to to think about. This is what what makes it endlessly fascinating for me. Yeah. And I think the real intellectual work is at the level of the art, right? And I think probably engineering at its highest level becomes an art as well, right? Uh, so policymaking, you never you never know. Um, but I will say this: I'll say you have to ask yourself and look in the mirror and say, "Is all the effort I'm putting in actually making this better?" And in Afghanistan, you look at the 20 years and two plus trillion dollars that the US has put in. And the fact that, as you said correctly, it's not doing well right now after 20 years of that investment. You know, I might like a company that I invest in, but after 20 years of my throwing money in that company, 
you know, it's time to get out. Well, in some sense, getting out now is, um, that's kind of obvious. I'm more interested in how we figure out in the future how to get out earlier than, I mean, at, at this point, it's, we've stayed too long and it's obvious, the data, the, the investment, uh, nothing is working, you know. It's very, the very little data points to us uh, staying there. I'm more interested in, uh, you know, being in a relationship, let me back, take it back to a safer place again, being in a relationship and getting out of that relationship while things are still good, but you have a sense that it's not going to end yeah. up in a good yeah. place. Yeah. That's that's the difficult thing. You have to ask yourself, whether it's a relationship or you're talking about policymaking in a place like Afghanistan, are the things I'm doing showing me evidence, real evidence mm -hmm. that they're making things better? or making things worse? That's a hard question to ask. Be honest with you. You have to be it. very honest. And, and in a policymaking context, we have to actually do the same thing we do in a relationship context. What do we do in a relationship context? We ask other friends who are observing, <laughs> right? We ask for other observers. This is actually just a scientific method element actually, yeah. right? That we can't, the Heisenberg principle, I, I can't see it because I'm too close to it. I'm changing it by my looking at it, right? I need others to tell me in a policymaking context, this is why you need to hear from other people not just the generals, because here's the thing about the generals. They're, they generally are patriotic, hardworking people, but they're too close. They're not lying. They're too close. They always think they can do better. Yeah. How do you think about the Cold War now from the beginning to end? And maybe also with an eye towards the current potential cyber conflict, cyber war with China and with Russia, if we look sort of other kind of cold wars potentially emerging in the 21st century, when you look back at the cold war of the 20th century, how do you see it and what lessons do we draw from it? It's a wonderful question because I teach this to undergraduates and it's really interesting to see how undergraduates now, almost all of whom were born after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, so the Cold War is ancient history to them. In fact, yeah, the Cold War to them is as far removed as you know the 1950s were to me. I mean, that's the, you know, that's it's it's unbelievable. It's almost like World War II for my generation and Cold War and Cold War for them. It's so far removed. The collapse of the Soviet Union doesn't mean anything to them. Um, so, uh, so how do you? How do you describe the Cold War to them? How do you describe the Soviet Union to them? First of all, uh, I have to explain to them why people were so fearful of communism. Anti-communism is very hard for them to understand. Um, the fact that in the 1950s, Americans believed that communists were going to infiltrate our society and many other societies, and that after Fidel Castro comes to power in 1959, that we're going to see communist regimes all across Latin America, that fear of communism married to nuclear power, and then even the fear that maybe economically they would outpace us because they would create this sort of army of Khrushchevian, you know, creep builders of things. And, you know, what does Khrushchev said, right? Say, we're, we're going to catch Britain in five years and then the United States after that, right? So to, to explain that sense of fear to them that they don't have of those others, yeah. uh, that's really uh, important. The Cold War was fundamentally uh, about the United States def defending a capitalist world order against a serious challenger from communism, an alternative way of organizing everything, private property, economic activity, enterprise, life, everything organized in a totally different way. It was a struggle between two systems. So uh, your sense is, and sorry to interrupt, but sure. your, your sense is the, the conflict of the Cold War was between two ideologies 
and not just two big countries with nuclear weapons. I think it was about two different ways of life or two different um, promoted ways of life. The Soviet Union never actually lived communism. Yes. But I, I think my reading of Stalin is he really tried to go there. That, and Khrushchev really believed, Gorbachev thought he was going to reform the Soviet Union so you would go back to a kind of Bukhar and Lenin mm -hmm. communism, right? So um, I do think that mattered. I do think that mattered enormously. And for the United States point of view, um, the view was that communism and fascism were these totalitarian threats to liberal democracy and capitalism, which went hand in hand. So I do think that's what the struggle was about. And in a certain way, liberal capitalism proved to be the more enduring system, and the United States played a key role in that. that that's the reality of the Cold War. But I think it means different things now to my students uh, and others. Uh, they focus uh, very much uh, on the expansion of American power and the challenges of managing uh, they're, they're looking at it from the perspective of not, will we survive, but did we waste our resources on some elements of it? It doesn't mean they're against what America did, but there is a question of the resources that went into the Cold War and the opportunity costs. Um, and you see this when you look at the sort of healthcare systems that other countries build and you compare them to the United States, race issues also. Um, so they, they look at the costs, which I think often happens after a project is done, you look back at that. Second, I think um, they're also more inclined to see the world as less bipolar, to see uh, the role of China as more complicated, post-colonial or anti-colonial movements, uh, independent states in Africa and Latin America, that gets more attention. So the, one of the criticisms now is because you forget the, the lessons of 20th century history and uh, the atrocities committed under communism that you may be a little bit more willing to uh, accept some of those ideologies into our the United States society. That this kind of um, that forgetting that capitalistic forces are part of the reason why uh, we have what we have today. There's a fear amongst some now that we would have uh, we would allow basically communism to take hold in America. I mean, uh, Jordan and others speak to this kind of idea. I tend to not be so fearful of it. I think it's on the surface, it's not deep within. I do see the world as very complicated as a as there needing to be a role of having support for each other on some certain political levels, economic levels, and then also supporting entrepreneurs. It's like, um, that the kind of enforcing of outcomes that is fundamental to the communist system is not something we're actually close to. And some of that is just fear mongering for, for, uh, for likes on Twitter kind yep, of thing. Yep. If I could come in on that, cause I agree with you a hundred percent. I've spent a lot of time writing and looking at this and talking to people about this. Um, th there's no communism in the United States. There never has been, and there certainly isn't now. And and I'll I'll say this both from an academic point of view, but also from just spending a lot of time observing young people in the United States, even those on the farthest left, take whoever you think is the farthest left, they don't even understand what communism is. They're not communist in any sense. Americans are raised in a vernacular and environment of private property ownership. And as you know better than anyone, if you believe in private property, you don't believe in communism. So. Yeah. The, what, what the sort of Bernie Sanders kind of socialist elements, that's very different, right? And I would say some of that, not all of that, 
Some of that does harken back to actually what won in the Cold War. There were many social democratic elements of what the United States did that led to our winning the Cold War. For example, the New Deal uh, was investing government money mm -hmm. in propping up business, in propping up labor unions. And during the Cold War, we spent more money than we had ever spent in our history on infrastructure, on schools, uh, on providing social support, social security, our national pension system being one of them. So you could argue actually that social democracy is very compatible with capitalism. And I think that's the debate we're having today, how much social democracy. I'd also say that the capitalism we've experienced the last 20 years is different from the capitalism of the Cold War. Uh, during the Cold War, there was the presumption in the United States that you um, had to pay taxes to support our Cold War activities that it was okay to make money, but the more money you made, the more taxes you had to pay. Um, we had the highest marginal tax rates in our history during the Cold War. Now, the aversion to taxes, and of course, no one ever likes paying taxes, but the notion that we can do things on deficit spending, that's a post-Cold War phenomenon. That's not a Cold War phenomenon. So, so much of the capitalism that we're talking about today is not the capitalism of the Cold War. And maybe, again, we can learn that and see that, see how we can reform capitalism today and, and, and get rid of this false worry about communism in the United States. Yeah, you know, you make me actually realize something important. What we have to remember is the words we use on the surface about different policies, what you think is right and wrong, is actually different than the core thing that like is in your blood, the core ideas that are there of, I, I do see the United States as this, there, there's this fire that burns of individual freedoms, of, uh, of, of, of property rights, these, these basic foundational ideas that everybody just kind of takes for granted. And I think if you hold on to them, if you're like raised in them, talking about ideas of social security, of universal basic income, of, of, of reallocation of resources is a fundamentally different kind of discussion than you had in the Soviet Union. I think the value of the individual is so core to the American system that you basically cannot possibly do the kind of atrocities that you saw in the, in the in the Soviet Union, but of course, you never know. The slippery slope has a way of changing, uh, changing things. But I do believe the things you're born with is just so core to this country. Yeah. It's it's part of the. I don't know what your thoughts are. We are we are in Texas. Um, not necessarily. I don't necessarily want to have a gun control type of conversation. But the reason I really like guns, it doesn't make any sense. But philosophically. It's, it's such a declaration of individual rights that's so different than the, the conversations I hear with my Russian family and my Russian friends. That the gun, it's, it's very possible that having guns is bad for society in the sense that like it will lead to more violence, but there's something about this discussion um, it, that like, that proclaims the value of my freedom as an individual. I'm, I'm not being eloquent in it, but there's very few debates where whenever people are saying, should we have what level of gun control, all those kinds of things. What I hear is it's a fight for how much 
freedom, even if it's stupid freedom, should the individual yeah, have? I think that's I think that's what that, that's what's articulated quite often. I I think uh, combining your two points, which are great points, I think there is something about American individualism which is deeply ingrained uh, in our culture and our society, and it means that the kinds of bad things that happen are different. Yes, <laughs> usually not yes. as bad, but. But our individualism often covers up for um, vigilante activity and individual violence toward people that you wouldn't have in a more collective culture. Um, so in the Soviet Union, it was at a much worse scale, and it was done by by government organizations. In the United States, it's you know individuals. The history of lynching in our country, for example, uh, sometimes it's individual police officers, sometimes it's others. Uh, again, the vast majority of police officers are good people and don't do harm to people. But there are these examples, and they they are able to fester in our society because of our individualism. Now, gun ownership uh, is about personal freedom, I think, for a lot of people, and. Um, there's no doubt that in our history, included in the Second Amendment, which can be interpreted in different ways, is the presumption that people should have the right to defend themselves, which is what I think you're getting at here, mm -hmm. that you should not be de completely dependent for your defense on an entity that might not be there for you. You should be able to defend yourself. And guns symbolize that. Um, I think that's a fair point. Uh, but I think it's also a fair point to say that as with everything, uh, defining what self-defense is is really important. So does self-defense mean I can have a bazooka? Does it mean I can have weapons that are designed for a military battlefield to mass kill people? That seems to me to be very different from saying I should have a handgun or some small arm to defend myself. Uh, that distinction alone would make a huge difference. Most of the uh, mass shootings, at least, which are a, proportion, a smaller proportion of the larger gun deaths in the United States, which are larger than any other society, but at least the mass shootings, are usually perpetrated by people who have not self-defense weapons, but mass killing, mass killing weapons. And I think, I think there's an important distinction there. The Constitution talks about a right to bear arms for a well-regulated militia. When the framers talked about arms, that did not mean the ability to kill as many people as you want to kill. It meant the ability to defend yourself. So let's have that conversation. I think it would be useful as a society. Stop talking about guns or no guns. What is it that we as citizens need to feel we can defend ourselves? Yes. Yeah, I mean, guns have, have this complicated issue that it can cause harm to others. I tend to see sort of maybe in drug, like legalization of drugs, I tend to believe that we should have the freedom to do stupid things. Yeah, so and, long as we're not harming lots of other people. Uh, yes, and then guns, of course, have the property that they can be used. It's not just, a, you know, a bazooka, I would argue, is pretty stupid to own for your own self-defense, but it has the very negative side effect of being potentially used to harm other people. Right, right. And you have to you have to consider that kind of stuff. By the way, as a side note to the listeners, uh, there's been a bunch of people saying that uh, Lex is way too libertarian for my taste. No, I, I actually am just struggling with ideas and sometimes put on different hats in these conversations. I, I um, think through different ideas, whether they're left, right, or libertarian. That's true for gun control, that's true for immigration, that's true for all of that. I think we should we should have discussions in the space of ideas versus in the space of bins we put each other in, labels and we put each I other agree, in. I agree 100%. And also change our minds all the time. <laughs> Try out, say, say stupid stuff with the best of intention, trying our best to think through it. And then after saying it, think about it for a few days and then change your mind and grow in this way. Let me ask a ridiculous question. When you zoom out 
when uh, human civilization has destroyed itself and alien uh, graduate students are studying it uh, like three, four, five centuries from now, what do you think we'll remember about this period, period in history? The 20th century, the 21st century, this, this time we had a couple of wars, we had a charismatic black president in the United States, we had um, a couple of pandemics. What do you think will actually stand the, the stand out in history? No doubt, the uh, rapid technological innovation of the last twenty to thirty years. Uh, how we created a whole virtual universe mm. we didn't have before, and of course, that's going to go in directions you and I can't imagine fifty years from now that this will be seen as that origin moment, that when we went from playing below the rim to playing above the rim, right, to being all in person, to having a whole virtual world. And in a strange way, the pandemic was a, a provocation to move even further in that direction. And we're never going back, right? We're, we're, we're gonna restore some of the things we were doing before the pandemic, but we're never gonna go back to that world we were in before, where every meeting you had to fly to that place to be in the room with the people. Um, so this whole virtual world and the virtual personas and the avatars and all of that, um, I think that's that's going to be a big part of how people remember our time. Also, the sort of biotechnology element of it, which, which the vaccines are part of. Um, it's amazing how quickly, this is the great triumph, how quickly we've produced and distributed these vaccines. And of course, there are problems with who's taking them, but, but the reality is, I mean, th this is light speed compared to what it would have been like, not just in 1918, in 1980. Yeah, one of the, and sorry if I'm interrupting, no. but one of the disappointing things about this particular time is because vaccines, like a lot of things got uh, politicized, used as little pawns in the game of politics, that we don't get the chance to step back fully at least uh, and celebrate the the brilliance of the human species. That's right. That they, right. this is yes, there are scientists who use their authority improperly, that have an ego, that um, when they're within institutions are dishonest with the public because they don't trust the intelligence of the public. They are not authentic and transparent. All, all the same things you could say about humans in any positions of yes. power anywhere. Okay. That doesn't mean science isn't incredible, and um, the vaccines. I mean, I don't. I don't often talk about it because it's so political, and it, it, it it's heartbreaking to. It, it's heartbreaking how all the good stuff is getting politicized. Yeah, that's right, and it shouldn't be. And it, it'll seem less political. Um, in the long arc of history, it, it, yep. It'll see. It'll, it'll it'll be seen as an outstanding accomplishment. And as a you know a step toward whatever maybe they're doing vaccines or something that replaces a vaccine in ten seconds you know at that point right yeah. it'll be seen as a step to those will be the, some of the positives I think one of the negatives they will point to will be um, our inability at least at this moment to manage our environment better how we are destroying our living space and not doing enough even though we have the capabilities to do more to preserve or at least allow a sustainable living space I'm confident because I'm an optimist that we will get through this and we will be better at sustaining our environment in future decades. And so in terms of environmental policy, they'll see this moment as a dark age or the beginnings of a better age, maybe as a renaissance. Mm -hmm. Or maybe uh, 
as a, as the last time most people lived on Earth, when a couple of centuries afterwards we were all dissipated throughout the the, the solar system and the galaxy. Very possible. If, if uh, the local resident, hometown resident, Mr. Elon Musk, has anything uh, to do with it, <laughs> I, I do t I do tend to think you're absolutely right with all this political bickering. We shouldn't forget that what this age will be remembered by is the uh, is the incredible levels of innovation. Yes, I do. Th I do think the biotech stuff worries me more than anything because it feels like there's a lot of weapons that could be yet to be developed in that space. But uh, I tend to believe that I'm excited by by two avenues. One is artificial intelligence, the kind of um, the kind of systems we'll create in this digital space that you mentioned we're moving to. And then the other, of course, this could be the product of the Cold War, but I'm super excited by space exploration. Sure. There's sure. a magic to, to humans being and, space. And we're getting back to it. I mean, we, we were enthralled with it in the 50s and 60s when it was a Cold War competition. And then after the 70s, we sort of gave up on it. And thanks to Elon Musk and others, we're, we're coming back to this issue. And, and I think there's so much to be gained from the power of exploration. Is there books or movies in your life long ago or recently that had a big impact on you? It yes. Could be something you were. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, my favorite novel, I always tell people this, I love reading novels. I'm a historian uh, and I think the historian and the novelist are actually, and the technology innovator are all actually one and the same. We're all- Storytellers. Storytellers. And we're all in the imagination space. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm trying to imagine the world of the past to inform us in the yeah. present for the future. So one of my favorite novels that I read, actually when I was in graduate school, is uh, Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks. Mm. And it's the story of a family in Lübeck in Northern Germany, living through the 19th century and the rise and fall of families, cycles of life. Many things we've talked about in, in the last couple of hours. Cycles of life, um, challenges of uh, adjusting to the world around you. And it's just a very moving reflection on the limits of human agency and how we we all have to understand the circumstances we're in and adjust to them. And there's triumph and tragedy in that. Uh, it's a wonderful novel. It used to be a kind of canonical work. It's sort of fallen out now. It's a big, big novel, but uh, I, I'm very moved by that. I'm very moved by Tolstoy's War and Peace. I assign that every year to my students. That's a big, big book. Uh, but what Tolstoy challenges is he challenges the notion that a Napoleon can rule the world. And we're all little Napoleons, right? We're all sort of thinking that we're going to do that. And he reminds us how much is contingency, circumstance. It doesn't mean we don't have some control. You've uh, spoke to me a little bit of Russian. Where does that come from? So your your appreciation of Tolstoy, but also your ability to speak a bit of Russian. Where's that, where's that so, from? So uh, I speak, in addition to English, I speak... Uh, reasonably well, depending on how much vodka I've had. Yes. <laughs> Russian, Very I speak important. French and German. Um, I learned those uh, for uh, research purposes. I learned French actually when I was in high school, Russian when oh. I was in college, German when I was in graduate school. Now I do have family on my mother's side that's of Russian Jewish extraction, um, but they were Yiddish speakers by the time you know I met them, by the time they had gone through Germany and come to the United States, or really gone through Poland and come to the United States, they were Yiddish speakers. So there's no one really in my family who speaks Russian, but I do feel a connection there, at least a, a long range uh, personal connection. Is there something to be said about the language and your ability to imagine history? Sort of um, when you study these different countries, your ability to imagine what it was like to be, um, a part of that culture, a part of that time. 
yes, language is crucial to understanding a culture. And um, even if you learn the language as I have, you're learning Russian and German and French, it's still not the same as also being a native speaker either, right. as, as you know. Um, but I think language tells you a lot about mannerism, about assumptions. Uh, the, the very fact that English doesn't have a formal you, but Russian has a formal mm -hmm. you, right? V versus T, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. German has a formal you, Z versus D, right? So the fact that English doesn't have a formal you tells you something. Uh, about Americans, right? And that's just one example. Uh, the fact that, um, you know, that Germans have such a wider vocabulary for certain scientific concepts mm -hmm. than we have in English tells you something about the culture, right? Language is an artifact of the culture. The culture makes the language. It's fascinating to explore. I mean, even just exactly what you just said, uh, which is, there's a fascinating transition so I guess in English we just have you. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a fascinating transition that persists to this day is is of uh, formalism and politeness, where it's an initial kind of dance of interaction that's uh, different methods of signaling respect. I guess we don't the and language provides that, and in the United in the English language there's fewer tools to show that kind of respect, which has potentially positive or negative effects on, it flattens the society where like a teenager could talk to an older person and show like uh, like a, a deference that, I mean, but at the same time, I mean, it creates a, a certain kind of dynamic, a certain kind of society. And it's funny to think of just like those few words can have any, like a ripple effect through the whole culture. And we don't have a history in the United States of, of aristocracy. Yeah. The, these uh, right. elements of language reflect aristocracy. The, the, the serf would never refer to the master, even if the master is younger, yeah. as toy. It's always voy, right? Yeah. In Turgenev, it's always voy, right? I mean, and so it's, um, yeah, it, it, so it tells you something about the history. That's why to your question, which was a great question, it's so crucial to try to penetrate the language. I'll also say something else, and this is a problem for many Americans who haven't learned a foreign language. We're very bad at teaching foreign languages. If you've never taught yourself a foreign language, you have closed yourself off to certain kinds of empathy because you have basically trained your brain to only look at the world one way. The very act of learning another language, I think tells your brain <laughs> that words and concepts don't translate one-to-one. This is the first thing you realize, right? We can say, you know, these two words mean the same thing from two languages. They never mean exactly yes. the same thing. Right? Dos vidanya is really not goodbye. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> and, and, and there's something, you know, right now there's people talking about idea of lived experience. One of the ways to force yourself into this idea of lived experience is by learning another language. Right. It's to understand that you can perceive the world in a totally different way, even, even though you're perceiving the same thing. And of course, the way to first learn Russian for those looking for tutorial lessons for me is just like, as you said, you start by drinking lots of vodka. Yes, of course. It's very difficult to do otherwise. Is there advice you have for young people about career, about life uh, in making their way in the world? Yes, uh, two things I, I, I believe that I say to a lot of talented young people. First, um, I, I don't think you can predict what is gonna be well remunerated 20 years from now. 
don't pick a profession because you think, even though your parents might tell you or do this and you'll make money. You know, this is the scene in The Graduate uh, where the guy tells Dustin Hoffman, go into plastics, money in plastics. <laughs> we don't know. So many of my yeah. students now have parents who are telling them, uh, bright students, you know, go to the business school. That's, where, that's what's gonna set you up to make money. If you're passionate about business, yes. But don't begin by thinking you know what's gonna be hot 20 years from now. You don't know what's gonna be hot from 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years from now. What should you do? This is advice number one. Find what you're passionate about. Because if you're passionate about it, you will do good work in that area if you're talented. And usually passion and talent overlap. And you'll find a way to get people to pay you for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do it really well, people will wanna pay you. That, that's where capitalism works. People will find it valuable. Right? Whether it's violin playing, right, or engineering, or poetry, you will find. You might not become a billionaire. That involves other things, but you'll find a way to get people to pay you for it. And then the second thing is, um, it's really important uh, at the very beginning of your career, even before you're in your job, right, to start building your networks. But networks are not just people you're on Facebook with or Twitter with. I mean, that, that's fine. Uh, it's actually forming relationships. And some of that can be mediated in the digital world, but I mean real relationships. I like podcasts because I think they actually open up that space. I know a lot of people can listen to a podcast and find someone else who's listened to that podcast and have a conversation about a topic. It opens right. up that space. Build those relationships, not with people who you think will be powerful, but people you think are interesting mm -hmm. because they'll do interesting things. And every successful person I know at some level had a key moment where they got where they are because of someone they knew for some other reason yeah. who had that connection. So use and spread your networks and make them as diverse as possible. Find people who are of a different party, have different interests, but are interesting to you. That's brilliant advice. And some of the, on the, on the passion side, I do find that um, as somebody who has a lot of passions, I, I find the, the second part to that is commit committing? Yes, that's true too. Which sucks because life is finite. And when you commit, you say, well, I'm never going to be good. Like when you choose one of the two passions, one of the two things you're interested in, you're basically saying, I'm I'm letting go. I'm saying that's the Sudanya to uh <laughs> That's true. That's true. Which is actually what Dosvidanya means. Not yes. goodbye, but letting go. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I think that's I think you do have to make choices. You do have to set priorities. Uh, I often laugh at students who tell me they want to have like three majors. If you have three majors, you have no major, right? Yeah. I mean, so I do think you have to make choices. I also think um it's important that whatever you do, even if it's a small thing. You do. You always do the best you can. You always do excellent work. My kids are tired of hearing me say this at home, but I believe everything you do should be about excellence, the best you can do. If I'm gonna wash the dishes, I'm gonna be the best person washing the dishes, Yeah. right? If I'm gonna write uh, a book review, I'm gonna write the best possible book, book review I can. Why? Because you develop a culture among about yourself, which is about excellence. Yeah, I was, I was, t I was telling you offline about uh, all the kind of stuff, Google Fiber and cable installation, all that stuff. I've been always a, a believer washing dishes. People don't often believe me when I say this. I don't care what I do. I, I'm, I am with David Foster Wallace. I'm unborable. There is so much joy for me, I think for everyone, but okay, let me just speak for me, to be discovered in getting really good at anything. In fact, getting good at stuff that most people believe is boring 
or menial labor or uh, you know impossible to be interesting that's even more joyful to find the that's joy right. within that that's and the right. excellent it's the jiro dreams of sushi making the same freaking sushi over and over yep. and becoming yep. a master of that that's that can be truly joyful there's a sense of pride and uh, on the pragmatic level you never know when someone will spot that and uh intelligent people who perform at the level of high excellence look for others who do yeah. the same and it radiates some kind of signal it's weird it weirds what you're it's weird what you attract to yourself when you just focus on mastery and, and pursuing excellence in something like this is the cool thing uh, about it. That's the joy I've really truly experienced. I didn't have to do much work. It's just cool people kind of, I find myself in groups of cool people, like yeah. really people who are excited about life, who are passionate about life. There's a fire in their eyes that's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, just makes life fun, you know, something. And then also money wise, at least in this society, we're fortunate to where if you do that kind of thing, money will find a way. Like I have the great, I, I say this, that I don't care about money. You know, I have to think about what that means because some people criticize that idea as like, yeah, was, that must be nice to say that. Because uh, I've, for much many periods of my life, had very little money. But I think we live in a society where not caring about money, but just focusing on your passions. If you're truly pursuing excellence, whatever that is, money will find you. That's, I guess, the ideal of the capitalist system. And I think that the entrepreneurs I've studied and had the chance to get to know, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, they. They do what they do because they're passionate about the product. Yeah, They're not just in it to make money. In fact, that's when they get into trouble, when yeah. they're just trying to make money. Exactly. You said your grandmother, Emily, had a big impact on your life. She lived to 102. What are some lessons she taught you? Emily, who was the, the child of immigrants from, from uh, Russia and Poland, uh, who never went to college, uh, her proudest day, I think, was when, when I went to college. Um, she, um, she treated everyone with respect and tried to get to know everyone. She knew every bus driver in the town. She'd remember their birthdays. And one of the things she taught me is no matter how high you fly, the lowest person close to the ground matters to you. And uh, you treat them the same way you treat the billionaire at the top of the podium. And she, she did that. She didn't just say that. Some people say that and don't do it. She, she really did that. And, and I always remember that it comes up in my mind at least once a week because we're all busy doing a lot of things. And you either see or you even feel in yourself the desire to just, for, for the reasons of speed, to be short or not polite with someone who can't do anything to, to harm you right now. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, her saying to me, no, you, you, you don't, you, you, you treat everyone with respect. You treat you know, the person you're on the phone with, right? Customer service. You treat that person as if you're talking to Jeff Bezos or you're talking to Elon Musk, right? Uh, and, and I think making that a culture of who you are is so important. And people notice that, that's the other thing. And they notice when it's authentic. Everyone's nice to the person at the bottom of the totem pole when you want to get ahead in the line for your driver's license. Yeah. <laughs> but are you nice to them when you don't need that? They notice that. And even when nobody's watching, that has a weird effect on you that's going to uh, to have a ripple effect and people know. That's the cool thing about the internet. I, I've come to believe that 
people see authenticity. They see when you're full of shit, when you're not. That's right. The other thing that, that Emily taught me, and I think we've all had relatives who have taught us this, right? That you could be very uneducated. She was very uneducated. She, you know, she had a high school diploma, but I think she was working in, you know, in, in a delicatessen in New York, you know, while she was in high school, or maybe it was at Gimbel's or something. So she probably didn't take high school very seriously. She wasn't very well educated, but she was very smart. And we can fall into a world where and I'm a big believer in higher education and getting a PhD and things of that sort, but where we think those are the only smart people. No. Sometimes those are the people because of their accomplishments, because of their egos are the ones who are least educated in the way of the world. Yeah. Least curious and not, ultimately wisdom comes from curiosity. And sometimes getting a PhD can get away, uh, can get in the way That's of right. curiosity as opposed to empower curiosity. Let me ask uh, from a historical perspective, you've studied some of human history. So maybe you have an insight about what's the meaning of life. Why, um, why, do you ever ask when you look at history, the why? Yeah, I do all the time. And I don't have, I, I don't have, a, <laughs> I don't have an answer. It's, it's the mystery that we can't uh, answer. I, I do think um, what it means is what we make of it. There's no universal, every, every period I've studied, and I've studied a little bit of a lot of periods and a lot of a few periods, every period people struggle with this and there's no, they don't come to, wiser people than us don't come to a firm answer, except it's what you make of it. Meaning is what you make of it. So think about what what you want to care about and make that the meaning in your life. Um, I wonder how that changes throughout human history, whether there's a constant. Like that's, I often think, especially when you study uh, evolutionary biology and you just see our origins from life and yeah. as it evolves, yeah. it's like, it makes you wonder, it, it feels like there's a thread that connects all of it that we're headed somewhere. We're trying to actualize some greater purpose. You know, like there, there seems to be a direction to this thing and we're all kind of stumbling in the dark trying to figure it out. But, but it feels like we eventually will find an answer. <laughs> I hope uh, so, yeah, maybe. I mean, I do think we all, um, we all want our families to do better. We we are we we are familial, and family doesn't just mean biological family. You can have all kinds of ways you define family and community. And I think, I think we are moving slowly and in a very messy way toward a larger world community to include all of biological life and eventually uh, artificial life as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so that this to. Uh, to expand the lesson to the advice that uh, your grandmother taught you is I think we should treat robots and AI systems uh, good as well, even if they're currently not very intelligent because one day they might be. Right, right, I think that's exactly right. And and we should think through exa exactly as a humanist how I would approach that issue. We need to think through the kinds of behavior patterns we want to establish with these new forms of life, uh, artificial life, um, for ourselves also, to your point. So we behave the right way, so we don't misuse this. We started talking about Abraham Lincoln, ended talking about robots. I think this is the perfect conversation, Jeremy. This was a huge honor. I love Austin. I love UT Austin. 
and I love the fact that you would agree to waste all your valuable time with me today. Thank you so much for talking today. I, I can't imagine a better way to spend a Friday afternoon. This was so much fun, and I'm such a fan of your podcast and, and delighted to be a part of it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Jeremy Surrey, and thank you to Element, Monk Pack, Belcampo, Four Sigmatic, and A Sleep. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. And now, let me leave you with some words from Franklin D. Roosevelt, FDR. Democracy cannot succeed unless those who express their choice are prepared to choose wisely. The real safeguard of democracy, therefore, is education. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.